You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We are live without a net. It is Monday, uh, May 21st, and I have the pleasure of being joined by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. Ed, how are you doing? Good. You know, uh, you said uh, May 21st. I believe, looking at my watch, it's May 24th, in fact. Oh, wow. You're correcting me already. You're, wow, you're, you're thinking about uh, Friday. You're still you know, living, uh, uh, getting ready for the weekend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My mistake. It is the 24th. Today is Monday. And Ed, you know, there's days like, let's say, last Wednesday when the crypto market was tanking, where you just have to use so much to cover. And then there are days like today where there's so many interesting stories, but nothing really stands out as something, um, you know, that we have to cover right now because it's so timely. So, Ed, today, you and I were chatting. I want to use today as to sort of zoom out and just uh, give people a framework of where we are in the market. So, so real quick, I'll, I'll say, Ed, um, you know, the stocks were uh, they performed well today. They drifted higher. Uh, Nasdaq up about 1.4 percent, uh, S&P up 1.17, and the Dow up just over half a percent. But Ed, what interested me was that the headlines today was that tech stocks surge as inflation fears ease, which is typical what you see when tech stocks surge. But I actually looked at the inflation break-evens, which is what the market, you know, how the market measures inflation fears, because it's what the market prices future inflation will be. And inflation break-evens actually rose today. Yeah, which is interesting. You know, so this whole as, and you know, uh, just for everyone who's listening, they uh, as we consider to be, um, you know, um, a shorthand way of saying because you don't want to say because, but so you put as there uh, to give you a, a, a sort of uh, um, an out, but. This is a case where you've been caught red-handed, but going as when really there is no as. Uh, it's it's exactly the opposite. Uh, if I had to put an as there, Jack, I'd put it probably to the crypto market. To be honest, I think that you know it's a risk on again, and you know that goes from crypto to the Nasdaq to the S and P to the Dow in reverse order, and that's how I would look at it. Yeah, and then there's also the factor of China, which uh, you know there was some big news out of China today. They cracked down on speculation, not in the crypto market, but in the commodity market. And here I'm reading: uh, China stepped up its fight against soaring commodity prices and announcing that it will show zero tolerance for monopoly behavior and hoarding. Uh, and on the news, Ed, um, iron and steel ore dropped 6%. They recovered later, but it shows that China, it's not just that they're cracking down on crypto speculation, they're cracking down on commodities as well. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, this is a good way for us to uh, move beyond crypto here today and to talk about what's in the market. You know, I will put the crypto in the in the in the, um, in the back of our heads because obviously China's dealing with crypto. But let's start um, with other markets. You already talked about the commodities markets. Uh, just a generalized context. The way that I'm thinking about it is that 
we have a shift that's that's happened. We the Chinese have wanted it to happen for some time. That is, is they're looking to go to a consumer-oriented economy. They want to get rid of the debt-laden, uh, you know, export-led, infrastructure-led economy that they used to have. And the 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 aftermath of the uh, pandemic gives them a chance to be able to do that. So when they downshifted their growth as a result of the pandemic, uh, that meant that they had a, an out to stop going after these ambitious growth targets. And so now what they're looking to do is, is to uh, move in a new direction. And part of doing that is to rein in excess to really you know, wring out all of the excess debt, the speculative behavior that is concomitant with that debt. And uh, what we're seeing, therefore, is a regulatory push across a lot of different things. I think you and I, we were looking at a story that was in uh, Bloomberg about this bad bank, uh, Huarong um, Asset Management, where the previous head had actually been executed for not doing the right thing. That's not the sort of thing that happens in in the West if you run a bad bank. Uh, but you know, the whole story was about the new head of the bank and how this new head was getting his arms around the problem of the bad debt uh, on on the balance sheet. Absolutely, and that bank is called uh, Huarong Asset Management. And it really is brewing to be quite a scandal because this bank was uh, started, I think, in the late 90s to serve as an investor in distressed debt. And we in the West, when we hear that, we think of people like Howard Marks, people who are, you know, opportunistically, you know, deploying capital to to uh, yield an outsized return on investing in bonds that are trading significantly below their par value because everyone has lost faith in them; they are distressed. But actually, the, I think the the you know goal of Huarong Asset Management pretty quickly, if not from the beginning, turned out to be essentially house the bad debt of the Chinese banking system. So it, it, you know, it's not the People's Bank of China, which is the Chinese central bank. It's you know, a few hundred meters away from the PBOC, People's Bank of China, um, in terms of the office. But it actually sort of serves this role that the Fed, say, the Federal Reserve, um, served during after the great financial crisis of serving as a storehouse for, for toxic assets. Yeah, and you know, it was a very interesting article that gave you a good glimpse into what's going on in China. There's a centralization of power under uh, um, the uh, under um, Xi, but at the same time, there's also this need to to crack down. And I think that you saw another story of the same uh, sort of thing in terms of the regulatory oversight increasing in the food market. Maybe you could talk about that. Oh, in the food. Well, that was um, based on the from the same article about um, iron, iron ore, and steel, right? It basically was uh, strongly disincentivizing speculation in the commodities markets for for foods, whether it's pork, which is you know China consumes the most pork um, in the entire world, or or other uh, food products. Basically, um, you know, asking people to uh, speculate less in the market, essentially, and, and hoard less. They use that term, which is quite a judgmental term. Yeah. And, and so what I would say is, is that that gives you the, sort of the backdrop. When we think of why the crypto market fell, there were two different uh, things in crypto from the Chinese. They went out and they talked about speculation in the, in the crypto market, and they also went against the, the crypto miners. And both those actions hiccup market that was already buffeted 
by uh, some statements from Elon Musk and some regulatory action from the United States. But I think just from a wider context, uh, think of it as the Chinese not necessarily targeting crypto. Perhaps they are from a digital currency perspective because they have their central bank digital currency that they're going to launch, but really more from uh, regulatory, uh, you know, let's uh, reduce bad debt, let's tamp down on speculation perspective. And, uh, and, and so that's the big story for me in terms of, you know, macro things that are happening and how they're related to uh, the crypto market. Yeah, uh, two quick things. One, really quickly, Ed, is just on the food angle. I think you can't just look at this from a financial point of view. It's not so much that they're worried that people are making too money speculating in food. It's that they're worried that that will rise the price of food, and that could, I think, contribute to social unrest and political instability. The second thing, Ed, is is I want to run an idea by you, which is I was looking at uh, Huarong Asset Management. I was looking at their bonds, and I expected the bonds to be issued through Huarong Asset Management, which is what it was called. But they actually have a variety of, uh, I don't know if they're limited liability companies, but you know, sort of shell entities that they issue them from. And they have, every single year, they have a different company. So there's like Huarong 2017. It's called Huarong Finance 2017, Huarong Finance 2018, 2019. And what I noticed, what really struck me is that these bonds are issued through the holding companies and the holding companies have what's called a keep well agreement or a comfort letter, where basically the parent organization uh, guarantees or wink, wink, you know, unofficially guarantees that the bond will be paid off. And that in turn attracts capital so they can secure it at a, at a much lower rate. And I want to, you know, it, it did remind me of one thing. And I don't want to cause alarm and I don't want to make a comparison that's not apt. But in this case, I really do think it is apt, which is, you know, I've studied pretty closely um, the history of Enron. And I know specifically that they did this uh, many times where they had a um, an off balance sheet arrangement where they, uh, uh, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, guaranteed the loan. And the loan was guaranteed by that stock, which is which is not the exact same thing. But um, you know, I think it's it's a it's a habit that you don't often see that's on the up and up. Now, do I think that foreign you know um, asset management will they be subject to the same pressure as Enron? No, because I think that they are fully backed by the Chinese government. So I think that they have some serious ammo at their back. But it, it did strike me. So I wonder, Ed, do you think that I'm going too far? Do you think I'm being a little too dramatic? You know, I don't know. I think uh, interestingly, when you started down that path, I thought to myself about Fannie and Freddie more than Enron. So w w the last part that you put about the implicit backstop from the federal government, that's really where I was thinking, because Fannie and Freddie, when they ran into trouble in 2008, what ended up happening is they got uh, nationalized. Uh, and so the, the implicit backstop was made good. Uh, perhaps that's what would happen with Wawrong, is that if they ran it aground, instead of being implicitly backed by Warong, the uh, holding company, it was it would actually be the PBOC or the government in some capacity coming in and, and making good on the uh, on the debt. But the, the, that whole arrangement just tells you why uh, you know they have to tamp down on speculation, why they are doing what they're doing. They're really trying to you know get a grip on the debt, which really went way up during this whole infrastructure led. Uh, growth phase that China went through. Yeah, uh, and just to 
give people at home context. I think there's about $41 billion worth of bonds um, that Huarong has issued that are, you know, have to be paid off soon. Uh, up until recently, the bonds were trading at par, meaning 100 cents on the dollar or $100 for every $100. Um, now, uh, you know, they, one of the one bond didn't pay a coupon payment in uh, you know sometime around March. I forget the exact date, and the bonds just plummeted. But then there was a regain of uh, confidence. But over the past week, they've gone down again. So now they're trading at about sixty cents on the dollar. So you know that is not a huge um, you know uh, well of confidence from the from the investors. <laughs> yeah. that, that that is for sure. You know, uh, just you know, to go to the crypto market for one second, uh, Jack, because we made some comments on Friday. Uh, that I wanted to go back to. Uh, so crypto pretty much is round tripped. Uh, on Friday, we were talking. I think we were at probably the 38 level. Uh, maybe we were already at the 40 level. And I was talking about support being in the 30 to 32 level. And so this is when the Chinese regulatory uh, missives got in there. Suddenly, the bottom fell out. And we just saw overnight, you know, 10, 12, 15% losses to the point where it got to 31 and change. And then it bounced uh, uh, very nicely, uh, you know, found, continued up to, to 36. And now I think we're almost back to the 40,000 level. But I think what it shows is, is, is that there is this, uh, you know, the 200-day moving average around the 40,000 level. The next level of support, as I was saying on Friday, 30 to 32, that's been proved right. Uh, we're, you know, we bounced off those levels, and now we're back to that 200-day uh, moving average level just below it. And so we'll just have to see where the crypto market goes from here. But for me, uh, you know the 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 amount of loss that we've seen, uh, you know, which is in the order of uh, 30, 35, 40 percent at one point, 50 percent. The question you have to ask yourself: Have we seen the top of the market? Uh, and when I say have we seen the top of the market, I'm not talking about crypto. I'm just talking about crypto as a manifestation of a, a wider trend. When you think of Ark Invest, when you think of the most speculative equities. Uh, down 30, 35%. When you think about Tesla, you know, which is well off its highs, um, you do have to wonder, are those, uh, are those shares coming back? Or are, they, uh, are, are we seeing right now the beginning of a long-term uh, sideways trend or uh, correction slash uh, bear market? Well, what does your gut say, Ed? Because we've been in a little bit of a sideways trend for bonds, for the higher quality speculative techs, let's say Tesla, and I say higher quality to differentiate it from something like, let's say, Nikola, you know, that's been going down, but not as much as we saw you know, in the real fireworks of, of late February, um, early March. You know, so Bitcoin, as you say today, uh, staged a, a remarkable resurgence. I also noticed that Virgin Galactic was up a few bucks, something, you know, 15, 20%, I don't know the exact number. So we are seeing a resurgence in that quite speculative technology what does your gut say, Ed, about about where we're going to be in, let's say, three months for crypto as well as these these uh, you know non profitable growth companies? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the real economy, but I can give you some of the parameters that I'm looking at. You know, I thought it was very interesting. I saw something that Lance Roberts, who uh, is over at RIA Advisors, wrote. Uh, you know, I've, I'm good friends with uh, his partner uh, Michael Leibowitz, who I've interviewed here in Real Vision twice. 
And, you know, he basically warned of a bubble in stocks back in March uh, 2020, right before that bubble popped. And what he's, he's saying is, is that shares are at their highest level ever relative to the three-year moving average, you know, in terms of uh, standard deviations. This is the highest ever. And, it, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, given the fact that, you know, we've had a— a run of like 80-some percent up at one point in, in the NASDAQ. But he has some other metrics that he was looking at. You know, RIA's Fear Greed Index is registering extreme greed right now. Uh, we see when we look at all the surveys, Bank of, uh, of uh, America, money manager surveys, other surveys showing extreme levels of bullishness amongst professional money managers. And then finally, um, I think Lance Roberts mentioned margin debt near highs with inflows into long leverage ETFs relative to the short leverage ETFs at extremes, uh, which would suggest that everyone's bulled up, everyone's on one side of the trade. And when you see that, uh, that makes the market vulnerable to a pullback. And even though the market's vulnerable to a pullback, it doesn't mean the pullback has to happen. If the real economy sticks with us, we can we can get through this. Let, let me add one more piece in before I, I uh, you give your analysis here. I saw something from John Authors that came out today, and he was talking about the Schiller P/E ratio. Uh, the Schiller P/E is now 37 times, which is the highest that it's been, except for a few months during the dot com bubble in 1999-2000. So we're at extreme levels in many different places. And so that would suggest that we're vulnerable to a pullback. And to me, that means that, you know, how the real economy does is very important at this particular time. Ed, yeah, that's a really interesting chart. One of us, you or I, could post this on, on Twitter later so people can see what we're looking at. But yeah, the, the price to earnings the CAPE ratio, which is essentially, uh, it's inflation adjusted, but it's also spread across multiple years. So you're not just capturing a snapshot in history, you're capturing multiple years. So that's that 37 price to earnings ratio, which as you said, it's lower, it's higher than any other time other than 2000. So that's the blue line. But Ed, what about this red line, which is long-term interest rates? I mean, in 2000, long-term interest rates were at what, six, 7%? Now we're still you know, barely hovering above zero. So isn't that gonna make a difference? Because you know, Ed, as you say, it's the DCF stupid. Right. Yeah. So I think that a lot of people, they would hang their hat on the fact that, you know, the difference between uh, then and now is, is that we've had a steady erosion of the interest rate. And so I think that explains some of the, um, you know, some of why uh, you have an elevated P.E. ratio. But obviously what that would suggest is, is, is that interest rates aren't going up. And why would interest rates not go up? Well, because the economy is stagnant or because uh, the Fed isn't able to get off zero in the way that they weren't able to in 2018, 2019, when they were forced to backtrack the, fa the famous Powell pivot. So there's something wrong with that. Uh, you know, when you have high PEs because you have low interest rates and they're rock bottom, you either one of those two doesn't work. Either the the price is too high because it's talking, or, or because of the earnings, the PE, the earnings are too are going to be lower than you think that they're going to be, or uh, you know the interest rates are going to go up. In which case, it's not justified by the uh, by the discounted cash flow. Uh, it's the DCF stupid. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of, of course. I should add that it's not always the DCF stupid. Like, I think if you look at periods like the 1950s and 1960s, interest rates were pretty low, but the PE ratio was like 11, whereas now it's, it's 37. So, of course, there's things like debt, there's things like demographic, cyclical things, and so many, so many more things. But generally, the lower the interest rate, the higher the price to earnings ratio is because the lower the rate uh, from which you're going to discount those future cash flows. So if E is constant, then P has to go up. But Ed, my question is, what if E, meaning earnings, and that's the denominator, the price is P, which is the numerator, what if E just continues to you know, out, uh, you know, outperform our wildest dreams like it did um, during er- earnings season with, with Apple, with, with Netflix, all of these companies reporting spectacular earnings. And Ed, I might add, what if that 37 actually goes down because you have the FANG stocks whose earnings are continued to grow, but they're, they've been continued to be trapped in a holding, holding pattern in terms of their price, and then the companies who are growing, you know, um, ton, like the price of their companies are going up, like ExxonMobil, it's because they went from losing $7 billion a year to gaining $12 billion a year. So it actually is, you know, priced in. What do you think? What do you think about that? Well, you know, what I said before with regard to, um, you know, the earnings potentially not being as good in, a, in, a, in a, an economy where the interest rates are low, really, you can't get over that by, you know, changing the composition because when you're looking at the CAPE ratio, you're really looking at an aggregate ratio, and you know that's much more representative of the, of the economy as a whole, at least large cap companies. Uh, and so, if the overall economy is stagnating, irrespective of whether or not you know individual components are larger and they're doing well, you still have a, a bunch of other companies that aren't doing well, and you aggregate that all together, and you're never going to be able to keep. Uh, the E portion growing higher unless the overall economy is growing higher. Um, And so that's what we want to do. The question is, is what do we do at this particular juncture to prevent uh, secular stagnation? So even if interest rates go up somewhat because we are, um, you know, the economy is going better and the, the Fed gets off zero, Earnings go up so much more just because you know there's more oomph in the economy. That's sort of like the Goldilocks uh, um, equation. And you know, I was thinking about this uh, earlier today from the the perspective of the house prices. You know, because uh, there was a tweet that was out that was talking about uh, Iowa, and uh, there was one specific example where uh, this uh, woman was talking about a house that was priced at 115 thousand, and two days later it sold. 25 offers, it sold for 175,000. You know, I saw a piece on, I think it was 60 Minutes last night, where they were talking about uh, Boise, Idaho, where the average price uh, inflation over the last year is 31%. You know, so as soon as I see things like that, I think about uh, debt because, you know, housing is backed by mortgages and that's a leveraged uh, investment. So if you get any sort of uh, pancaking of the price, suddenly a lot of people are underwater 
and then there's debt associated with that, and you, you get this deleveraging, and that's terrible. So the question is, is how can we prevent that from happening? How can we at least go sideways like you're talking about, or maybe even go higher, because the, the underlying E, so to speak, the economy is, is, is going higher? So I think that's really what it's all about, and getting to that is the answer uh, to the, the problem. And do you think we're there? Do you think that the economic progress we've seen in terms of the data for growth, inflation, whatever you want to call it, is there? I mean, does the fact that whether you say 175, you have to pay 175,000 for an $115,000 house, or you know, we've seen other anecdotes of you know, I I went to renew my lease on my Ford F-150 and I had to pay 25% more than the current asking price for the new one, or, or whatever thing you want to say, isn't that doesn't that represent economics, do you think it represents economic strength of the demand, or do you think it represents weakness of the supply? Well, let's put it this way, that uh, it's unsustainable if it continues like that. And at, at, at some point, it prices people out because of inflation, whether that's consumer price inflation or house price inflation, uh, that's bad. So what you want at a minimum is, uh, you know, after the parabolic rise, you wanted to stabilize. I saw a quote, by the way, this was from John Authors. Uh, it was Jeremy Grantham via John Authors. And this is what he said. He said, it's statistically simple to identify two sigma price moves. That is when the price moves two standard deviations out from their historical pattern. And all of them, every single one went back to where they came from. All of them, every one. That's what Jeremy Grantham says. So what he's basically implying is, is when you get parabolic moves like we've seen, by the way, in Tesla, in uh, Bitcoin, in cryptocurrencies, and th the sorts of moves that we're starting to see and even in house prices in places like um, Boise, Idaho, then you can't go sideways. It always goes down. What I'm saying is, is that to avoid a crash, maybe we can do what you say, which is get goose the E, um, and then we could go sideways. So we can go from 115 to 175 on that house in, in Iowa, go to 175 the next year, 175 the next year, and 175 the next year, and, gr and in that time period, we grow into the price. That would be the, the, the Nirvana Goldilocks scenario. I'm not saying it's going to happen or that Jeremy Grantham's wrong that, uh, it hasn't ha that it has happened in the past, but the one way to do it is to have both wages and investment go up at the same time. So if you could get wages to go up, and, I, and actually I saw an article about this. It was very good. Uh, a guy by the name of Alex Williams was writing this post, uh, who was talking about, uh, here's the quote he actually had. He said, if we can be sure that the final consumer demand will be there to validate new investments, we should welcome the discovery of bottlenecks because they let the economy know where to make investments. That's, that's his point is, okay, get the consumer demand to be there. The consumer demand's there because uh, wages are going up. We get the bottlenecks, which causes some level of inflation. But now uh, companies know that the demand's there, the bottlenecks are there because the demand's there. And we know that those it's not just a sugar high, it's actually supported by wages that are going up. And so they're going to make those investments and a rolling stone gathers no moss and voila, you know, we have, we're off to the races. Yeah, that's I, my, I think that's my nirvana. <laughs> that's your, okay. So, uh, 
Ed, I want to trace this, how we get to the Nirvana, because um, you know, I did an interview that airs on Wednesday with Marin Katusa, who's an investor in the commodity spaces. And he talked to me and he said, you know, silver's at what, $26, $27? That is Nirvana. I think he actually said that is Nirvana for silver miners who know what they're doing. If you're a greenfield producer and you, you know, you can't even produce it at $40 per ounce, I mean, you have no, you have no chance. What do you, you should just go home. But if you're, you know, if you're a veteran producer, you $26 is easy money. You could, you could, you know, make it at 10, 15, whatever. Um, so because of that, you're going to produce a ton of silver or you're going to sell the silver that you've been, um, you know, having in, in your coffers. And because of that, that's going to keep the price down. So he was, uh, Marin was warning silver bulls on saying, um, you know, the, the price of silver is going to, is going to uh, skyrocket because there's going to be another short squeeze in silver, just like GameStop. He's saying, no, look, there's a lot of, it's very easy for silver miners to produce silver and they can do so at way less than $26 where the current price is. So they will. And I think it's the same thing. If, if you know, if houses are now selling for 175,000 that used to sell for 115 or 120,000, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of building. Now, the thing is, it's going to take a while to build that supply. So in the in the you know medium run, um, that could be very good for the for the price of housing, right? Right. I mean, so let, let's say, for instance, that uh, again, you go from 115 to 175, you stay there, uh, you go up to 180 at some point, 185, you have a recession. Maybe at that point when you have the recession, you can have a garden variety recession because actually you've now moved to a point where you're not in a bubble-like period. You're much more in a normal period. Uh, interest rates have normalized. Um, you know, house prices aren't going up tremendously. We've grown into the 37 times CAPE ratio. Now the CAPE has come down to 25 because, as you said, the E has gone up. That would be the, the nirvana situation. Now, I, I would end all of this by saying that I don't believe it's going to happen, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm much more in the Jeremy Grantham camp that says that when you get two standard deviation moves, and by the way, that includes Bitcoin, just so that people know, Bitcoin is a two standard deviation move. Uh, maybe the 40% the or 50% down that we just had wipes that out. So now, you know, we're, we're at an oversold level and, and we moved up to 40 Maybe uh, you know we can we can get through, but I tend to think that uh, you know when you get these two standard deviation moves, you you have to uh, take it take it off the table. It, that is, it, you know, you pancake down, uh, and unfortunately, that means pain. So uh, the best thing for regulators to do is to intervene before you get there, take the punch bowl away before you get to the excess. But I think that we're already there, so there's going to be some level of pain in all probability, but I've laid out the case for how to prevent that, if at all possible. And so when you say take the punch bowl away, that makes me think you, the Fed, you know, the Fed, it would be the Fed who takes the punch bowl away, whether it's tapering asset purchases on the, you know, on the full end of the yield curve, or it's just raising rates on the short end, or I don't know, for me, it would be over here, but for, I guess, the audience, it would be over here. Um, the short end of the yield curve, raising rates. Do you think that, um, you know, the Fed will even ponder that? Because we're, we're not at the, uh, you know, price stability, unemployment we're really not not where they want to be in terms of labor. So I don't know if you saw the editorial from the Bloomberg editorial board, but it said that the Fed should ponder raising rates. So that's what the Bloomberg editorial board thinks. What is the Real Vision editorial board, as <laughs> represented by Ed Harrison, our managing editor? What is what is the Real Vision editorial board think? 
Well, you know, I've always said my preference is probably to reverse what we have now, which is all, which what used to be all monetary and no fiscal. Now we've gone from uh, uh, all monetary and, and no fiscal to all monetary plus all fiscal. I'd prefer to have you know, slightly more fiscal and then, you know, tighter uh, monetary. So if you think of it in terms of a paradigm of tight, uh, tight and loose in terms of monetary and fiscal, uh, the old paradigm was uh, loose monetary, tight fiscal. Now we're loose on both ends. My preference would be slightly looser on the fiscal side and then tighter on the monetary side. So that would mean jacking up rates uh, more quickly, like the Bloomberg um, uh, editorial says, uh, but remaining, you know, uh, adding uh, stimulus on the fiscal side uh, in order to promote wage growth uh, so that we can grow into the valuation. Thanks, Ed. Uh, we're getting pretty close to uh, ending the show. Let's take a few uh, questions from the audience. So, Ed, I feel like I just asked you a personal question, which was a should question, a would question. What should the Fed do? What would the Fed do? But Andrew, uh, he has a will question, which I think it's, will questions are generally better. Uh, he asks, Ed, how likely is it that Bitcoin breaks down below $30,000? Yeah, it's a, it's a uh, the sixty four thousand dollar question at this point. You know, um, there are multiple levels that we would look at forty around forty where we are now, which is the uh, two hundred day moving average. Then we have the thirty to thirty two level, which is the support levels that most people are looking at and they're talking to. That's also uh, the the fifty percent Fibonacci retracement. The next level down from there is uh, the 61.8 retracement, or 38.2, if you will, from in terms of you lost 61.2%. That's just below 25,000 on Bitcoin. And then I've seen people talk about uh, support uh, at the levels where uh, we entered 2021 at the 20,000 level. So we're at 40, uh, you know, 30 to 32 is where we bounced from. The next support level down to about 25, and then from there it's 20. So easily you could get yourself into uh, once you move beyond the 30 to 32, down to the Fibonacci retracement at 62% uh, loss. And then of course you get into the dynamics of what does that mean in terms of diamond hands and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, and I, I want to ask you a question, which is, what do you think about the impact of the crypto market on the broader traditional capital markets of stocks, bonds, whatever? Um, I understand you read an article today, which I want to, could you describe what that article said? And we, we can discuss it because I've got a few thoughts. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't remember exactly how the article put it, but I think that the, the, the gist of the title was that uh, the market shrugged off the uh, the crypto meltdown, uh, and so what the the article was saying is is, is that even though crypto has become a really big space, it's not so big that what happens there uh, is going to tip over into the broader market and therefore destabilize the broader market. And you can look at that positively or negatively in the sense that you know if you're a crypto fan then that's great because it means that there's more room to grow for crypto and it also means in general that you won't necessarily get a regulatory response uh, on the other hand 
it, it means that crypto hasn't, you know, gotten enough oomph yet. It, you know, there, not enough people have moved over from the analog to the digital world for it to really, you know, there's still room to run. My personal view on all of that is that, yes, as so, once you get to a certain level, I think the 50,000 level on Bitcoin, uh, to the degree that Bitcoin's representative of the space, uh, that's when the regulatory oversight starts to look interesting uh, because of systemic issues. I think if you were to see a, a Bitcoin 100,000 before the end of the year, uh, you you probably would never even get there because the regulatory oversight due to financial stability concerns would really become aggressive. And that's when the regulators would, uh, would, would start to try to do something about it, just like the Chinese have started and just like even the U.S. regulators have put a shot across the bow. Yeah, I, I think that Rao was dead on when he called Bitcoin a black hole because it sucks in all this capital from the real world. The question is, if you're a monetary authority from the real world, uh, how do you react to a black hole? You're, you're going to fight it. So I think that that definitely is a threat that may not be priced into to Bitcoin. Um, Ed, I, I want to bring up a point, which is that uh, from the, from this article, that about 110 billion of uh, money that went into Bitcoin was spent right. buying at an, an average cost of less than $36,000 per coin. And this is key, Ed, because there's a level at which the average person bought it. There's a level at which you know MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor bought it. There's a level at which Elon Musk bought it. And that's really it shouldn't matter, but psychologically it does because if you're above that level, you're make, you're making money. You're a crypto genius, and it makes if you go below that level, uh oh. You're not a crypto genius anymore, and you start having doubts. Um, not that I think you know Michael Saylor is ever close to having you know any doubts about his Bitcoin position, but I'm just saying. What do you think about this thirty-six thousand dollars per coin? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, before we we got off because actually earlier this morning I saw that article uh, and I, I uh, uh, wrote about it. Uh, you know, um, I, I I had like six tweets in a row about it. Uh, I think, let me see if I can find the tweet here. It was talking about a midweek report from blockchain analysis firm Chain um, Chainalysis uh, uh, showed that over half of the $410 billion spent on acquiring current Bitcoin coin holdings occurred in the past 12 months. And they said about $110 billion of that was spent at an average cost um, less than $36,000 per coin. That means that the vast majority you know, that's $300 billion uh, was spent uh, making a profit. You, uh, they wouldn't have a profit if it were over 36000 So when I talked about the thirty two to 40000 level, you know, between uh, this the sort of support level at 32 and the 200-day moving average at 40, where we are now, that's a very important level psychologically for people uh, because there are a lot of people who are either in the hole or not in the hole in that level. So it could be a tipping point. And ultimately, we passed the test the first time, the first go round where we bounced off 31,000. But there's no guarantee that's going to happen the next time. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. And I would add, just to answer Andrew's question, how likely is it that Bitcoin's breaks down through $30,000? I would say, just on a mathematical basis, that if you treat Bitcoin like an individual stock, except a lot more volatile, which, which it kind of is, um, it is just simply more likely than not, and you could be super bullish or super bearish, that it will have a what? A 33% you know, a, a correction, or I guess a 25% correction. I think those happens all the time. And you know, the, fact, the number of stocks that don't have a 25% correction within five years is 
very, very, very small. Um, one, now, once you get something that's diversified, like SP 500, you know, the odds of a drawdown are, are less so, and that's why people are so, you know, gung ho about indexing. But I think, you know, regardless of my position on Bitcoin, I actually think that, you know, will a, you know, an 100 vol asset, because again, some people say it's a 65 vol asset. They're, I think it's an 100 vol asset now. If you actually look at the updated things on, on like a 30 day traded thing. Um, if you look at the Bitcoin VIX, basically, it's, I think, above 100 now. Like The odds of that having a 25% correction is very high. So I think regardless of whether I, th let's say I, I you know, think Bitcoin's going to go to a million within a few years. Like it, I, If I were a mathematically minded person, um, which you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in mathematics, but I, uh, you know, I, be I believe it to be the case that it is likely that it, it, that it would go below net 30. That, that it, of course, that doesn't mean it will. I'd also add, Ed, that I think that um, Bitcoin, if you look at the 120-day correlation uh, between Bitcoin's daily returns and the S&P 500, and I, I can post this on Twitter, it has been positively correlated above a correlation of 0.2 for over a year now. So I think that you're right that you know crypto absolutely dunked during uh, weekend hours on, on yesterday. And you know it, it staged a miraculous recovery. And the S&P 500, it didn't really seem to impact risk assets at all. I think you're absolutely right yesterday. On Wednesday, I might add, you know, the NASDAQ wasn't looking too pretty as we entered the morning. And I might add that Bitcoin uh, really absolutely tanked um, right before the open. So I, I think that these assets are correlated. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, if, if I've got a chart, which I, I think you've seen before, like, in 2018 and in 2019, it was accurate to say that Bitcoin is not uh, correlated, but it's it's no longer accurate. We're in a, we're in a different regime now. Now we could exit and, and to a new regime, but I think that um you know that it has been correlated for over a year now, and I just think that you know it's kind of a fact. Yeah, I, I would agree. And you know the the more assets that are in uh, the cryptocurrency space, the more uh, uh, regulators will look upon it. So correlation, more asset space. Uh, more regulatory risk. I continue to believe that. I know there are some other people who don't think that the regulatory risk is that big a deal, but I think that uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well, Ed, thanks so much uh, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, thank you, Jack. Yeah. And uh, by the way, for to the people at home, I would say you know, thank you so much for watching. Stay tuned for Ash and Tony Greer TG Tuesday tomorrow. Um, if you are a member watching on realvision.com, thank you so much for being a member. We really cherish your membership. If you are a YouTube subscriber watching on YouTube, uh, please just like and smash that subscribe button and uh, think about going to realvision.com. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.